We're going to start. Um, so welcome back. Um, for this section of the proceedings, I'm going to ask a few questions. And by the end of the process, if Kevin and I haven't answered your burning issues, you can also pop your own questions um, in the chat. So I'm going to start by saying that I wanted to create a space for deleted scenes as soon as I read the first poem. And I'm a huge fan if that's not, you know, insanely obvious of Shirley Jackson and also of the 1963 film The Haunting, which is based on her novel The Haunting of Hill House. Um, one of the things that always impressed me about Jackson's work is that it is both an, a gothic story and not a gothic story. So Jackson's books and The Haunting of Hill House in particular deploy all the tropes, conventions and formulas of the classic haunted house story while also subverting them. So I love a good ghost story, which The Haunting definitely is, but maybe unlike the traditional ghost story, it isn't sort of fantastical or escapist. It doesn't take place in this kind of tightly contained fictional universe. There's no safety valve in Jackson's novel or in the film because it's taking place absolutely in, in the real world in a world that you know and recognize in a world that's in many ways quite grotty and mundane. Um, I think that Kevin's poems tap a similar space of that unresolved fear, that creeping unease, just sitting uncomfortably in the mundane world. So I wonder, Kevin, could you start by telling me something about what drew you to The Haunting and about where you feel these poems fit in terms of maybe the gothic or the horror genre? Well, basically, I mean, what, what drew me to The Haunting initially was um, I'd reached the age of 22 and I still hadn't seen the film. And I, I went back to Blackpool for this mate of mine, Robert, who's his 21st party. It was just me and him, basically, a couple of other people. And we went back to this guy's flat, and The Haunting was coming on BBC one or two about half 11 at night. So we sat and watched it. Never seen it before. And it impressed me because it was the, it was a, it was actually the first time round. It was actually quite a scary film. Yeah. And what really impressed me about it was the fact that the, the, all the effects were created by suggestion. I mean, when you actually see that film, there's one special effect where a door, there's something on the other side of the door and the door is bending inwards like that. That's it. Apart from that, you hear thumping on the walls and you can hear some muted dialogue coming through a wall. That's it. It's all built up using atmosphere. And I enjoyed it so much that I thought, oh, I've got to read the book. And as it happened, my mother had a copy of the book that she'd read and finished with, which is right there and she oh, said she, your mother was never she never read a book twice she read hundreds of books but she never read them twice she always just read it and then put it on one side so she gave me that and I read it and I read the first time I read it I think I read it in basically one sitting and it just stayed with me and I've seen the film oh god I don't know how many times and the thing I like about both the film and the book is that like a lot of really good ghost stories, it can be interpreted in one of two ways. Because in the book at one point, early on, Eleanor actually says, um, all these, because the house is all wrong. None of the corners are exact 45 degrees. They're all slightly off. The doors are all hung off center. The floors have all got a slight tilt. And she actually says, maybe it's the accum, and this is the novel, the accumulation of all this stuff is making people feel uneasy. That the whole thing could possibly be psychologically explained. And from there, um, I just I pondered it for years. And I mean, when you think about it, I first read the book when I was 22 and I didn't start writing the poems till I was about 60. So there was, there was a long gestation period, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I think the reason why I liked it also so much is because I've read hundreds of ghost stories. I mean, I've been addicted to them since I was a, a little kid. And I've read, I've lost count how many I've read. The vast majority I found disappointing. You know, there were they, so many of them seemed to be, um, and then I went back and the shop wasn't there. Or the fellow I was talking to at the bus stop, it turned out he'd been dead for 10 years or whatever. And what I liked about, what I loved about that was the fact that it, she'd written a novel that you could actually believe that that could have actually, mm -hmm. had, it rang true. And then what 
attracted me then when I started thinking about it was I noticed that there's actually two film versions. There's a colour remake, which is actually really, it's a kid's horror film, but I've seen it. And I noticed in that Dr. Montague, as he is in um, the book, Dr. Markway, as he is in the second, in the first film, and Dr. Merrow, as he is in the, the third film. And I began to ponder this idea that maybe what these were like, they were like folk tales. That, you know, when you get a folk tale, what happens is it's based on something that really happens. And then as it gets retold, it gets embellished and added to and added to and added to and added to. And I think where it fits in, it, I don't think it fits in with the usual Gothic novels at all, because I've read quite a lot of Gothic stuff. I mean, I've read the obvious ones like, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein. And I did actually plough through the castle of Otranto once and wondered why the hell I subjected myself to you know, God. But that's that's about all I can give you. I think it it it's part of it's what I think what Shirley Jackson did that was so brilliant was she took a genre which had largely become cliched and breathed brand new life into it. I think that's the mark of a really good writer. I mean, it's like um, I'm a great I like M R James ghost stories. Yeah. And there's one of his, oh, whistling, I'll come to you. And he takes the oldest cliche in the world, which is the bedsheet ghost, and yeah. turns it into the stuff of nightmare. And of course, I remember the first time I read that, I was, I had a, I was in the, the back room at my mum and dad's, there was a spare bed. And I read, I read the book before I went to bed, and then I'm lying there with the moonlight <laughs> coming through the thin curtains, looking at the bed next to me, you know. But that's, that's the best answer I can give you, I'm afraid. Will, will that do? That's a very good answer. And I'm really interested in what you say about the idea of the haunting story being like a folktale that's told in all these different ways and being kind of passed down across all of these different iterations. And maybe Shirley Jackson was just tapping into something itself that was older and had been there for much, much longer. Um, yeah. And I'm really interested also in like the idea that your poems are sort of one kind of one version or one telling of that story. Um, like following on from the book and then the film and then the poems. And I don't, I've got like a slightly facetious question, I guess. It's like a slightly daft question. It's like, what, what will the next version be? How will that story be told next? Do you have a kind of sense of that? But I also sort of want to know, I guess, why poetry to tell your version of the story? What's, what is it in particular about poetry as opposed to another medium? Well, I think it's because poetry has always been my first love. I mean, when I was, I started writing when I was in school, I had the, the good English teacher, you know, the one that every kid should have, the really good English teacher. Um, this guy, he was a very brave man because he came in, he, he came into a classroom for a 13 year old lad and said, right, hands up, who doesn't like poetry? And we all sat there thinking, this is a trick question. You know, if you say you don't like it, you're going to end up having to learn up, you know, 200 verses or something. Because at that point, I, I'd gone from loving poetry in the junior school to hating it in the secondary school. Because secondary school poetry was the dragon book of verse. Open your books. At, you know, we had this Irish Christian. Well, open your books now, lads, page 17. How they brought the good news from Ghent to X. Right. McCann, read the first verse. So you'd read the first verse. Right. Buy half for tomorrow or it's the leather for you. So you'd take it home, you'd learn it. I'd get my mum to test me, my dad to test me, my sister to test me. The conductor on the tram, because it was that long ago, I went to school on a tram. The conductor on the tram even tested me. And then he'd make you stand up round the wall. And as he was going along, the nerves got went and the strap came out and inevitably you stumbled. So you got the strap. So I, I associated poetry with pain. Now, coming back to this guy, Turner, what he did was, he said, all right, don't answer. I'm going to read you a poem now called The Death Shall Have No Dominion by Dylan Thomas. Mm. No questions, no essay, no comprehension. Just shut your eyes and listen and think of it as like a magic spell. And then he read it. Mm. And I had that moment where the hairs there on the back of my neck tingled, literally tingled. And then he started encouraging all of us to have a go at writing poetry, um, writing stories. He started a monthly school paper that I used to write for, but I always wrote, I always wrote poetry. And when I was about 16, there was a whole bunch of us who started writing poetry together. This was the 60s. 
so back then if you weren't if you weren't a rock musician you were a poet you know if you wanted to i mean be honest with you one of the reasons why i wanted to write poetry was because i thought it might make me a bit more windswept and interesting for the convent girl you know what i mean because i wasn't in a rock band i was lousy at sports and i couldn't afford a sports car and i wasn't old enough to drive one anyway so being a poet seemed to be the thing but as i got more and more into it i began to find that poetry became something that was more than just something i did it became a complete passion I mean, I noticed the other blokes that I wrote with when I was at school, they all fell away. There were people I met when I was at college that fell away. But it was always poetry. Um, I didn't start writing short stories again until about 20 years ago. I spent the previous time writing nothing but poetry. So when I started this sequence, uh, you know, I am the one, the first poem, I am the one that yeah. turned back. I didn't decide to write it as a poem. It just... Yeah, right. You know, it, it was almost like it demanded to be written as a poem. I had a, this mentor, this fellow called Matt Simpson, who said to me, if you're writing a poem and it's not working, it's not coming together, it wants to be a short story. Mm. And if you're writing a short story and that's going nowhere, it wants to be a poem. And after that, after I'd written the first one, then I wrote Dudley. And then the other poems that came actually a couple of years later, those two poems lay fallow for about two years before the others arrived. Mm. It was just, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, it seemed to me to be the natural and logical thing to do. And I suppose also because in poetry, you can imply a hell of a lot using just a few words. I mean, I remember um, when I was about 13 or 14, this cousin of mine, Michael, bought me this Bob Dylan album, Another Side of Bob Dylan. There's a song on that, The Ballad of Hollis Brown. It's about this mm. dirt farmer in South Dakota. He's got a wife and he's got five kids. They've got no money, starving, he's desperate. So finally, um, he shoots the kids, shoots his wife and kills himself out of sheer desperation. The last two lines of the song are, the seven shots ring out on a South Dakota farm and somewhere in the distance, there's seven new people born. Two lines that says so much, that implies so much. And that's, I think that's why I thought poetry, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a conscious decision, but I think that's why they came as poems, because poetry seemed to be, to me, to be the perfect form. So that, yeah, that's, it. That's, that's, that's a perfect answer, actually, I think. And, you know, I can see lots of people, lots of faces nodding along and really, that really resonates with all of us. That there Kevin, who was it? Can, can, I, can, I, can I ask a question, Kevin? Who? What was the name of the What was the name of the um, the writer who said that if it uh, if you're writing a poem and it's not quite coming together, then it wants to be a short story, or if it's a short story not quite coming, it wants to be a poem. Can I? I, I want to give proper attribution to that line. All right, his name was Matt Matt Simpson. Um, he was he he died a few years ago. Yeah, he was uh, he published a he published a lot. You'll find you, you might find him in the Blood Axe Back catalog if you want. Mm work he was, he was a good poet and he taught me a huge amount and that was one of the things he said to me about poetry was said look what prose does is it explains what poetry does is it implies um now that's not 100 percent, obviously because you can get peace i mean like the the haunting of hill house is prose but i think there are moments when there are quite a few moments where it aspires to the condition of poetry yeah. Just as poetry aspires, as Oscar Wilde said, aspires to the condition of music. But yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he had, he had some. He had some good pithy comments about poetry. He taught me a hell of a lot, like I said. But yeah, Matt Simpson, end of later. Thank you, Kevin. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. I also wonder. Um, I want to talk about something now. Just sort of like. As a, I have no elegant segue, so I'm just going to ask the question that I want to ask in, in a really kind of like obvious blurty out sort of way, um, because I know we spoke before about um, something that struck me about the poems and Eleanor's voice in particular was just how authentic they felt. And I remember telling you that um, if I'd been given the poems called, if I encountered them on the page, I would have assumed that a woman had wrote them. I couldn't quite, you know, sort of like, I just can't quite get over that. Um, I don't wonder if you have like a sense of how you achieve that voice um, and what, what what it was about the character of Eleanor that you identified with or which kind of spoke to you. I think what it was, it was because when I, when I, 
I was looking after Daniel's dad. And that was like, simplest way of explaining it, neither of us could leave this house unattended overnight. So Danielle and myself, what we had to do was split the week between us. And what I was doing was, when I was looking after him, you learn not to try to read a book. You don't watch, you never get involved in a TV program. You don't bother trying to read a book. Um, you, you can't relax. When I was back here, I was here on my own. And to be quite honest with you, I did get a bit lonesome sometimes. And one evening, there was nothing on the telly. I had a bottle of wine and I just thought, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll get the horns out and reread that. And I, I reread it and the poems started to come to me. You know, the poems about Eleanor. And I think the reason why I was able, I'm glad I'm able, I was able to make her completely believable and make her voice authentic was because even though I'm a man and she was a woman, the one thing we had in common was we both knew exactly what it's like to be a carer and how hard it is and how it drains the life out of you. It's not just physically exhausting, it's emotionally exhausting and it's, for want of a better way of putting it, it's spiritually exhausting as well. Yeah. And when you're looking after somebody with that condition, in a way, it is like being in a haunted house because you sleep light. The slightest noise will wake you. You can't, and there's strange things happen. Like one morning, I I accidentally overslept. I came downstairs. John Daniel's dad was in the living room trying to switch the telly on, and I walked in the kitchen, and he'd taken the, the kitchen chairs and put them in a circle, and got all the coats out of the clog room and put them in a pile in the middle of the circle mm. and then left it. You know, and I was thinking like, if that was, if you were, if that was a haunted house story, that would completely freak you out. You know what I mean? But it was that thing of being able to identify with the feelings because whether you're male or female, despair is despair. Hopelessness is hopelessness. And the desire for it to mm. end, but the guilt that you feel because you know there is only one way it can end. There's no, it's not going to be, I remember me and Danielle talking about it one, one day and saying, she turned around to me and said, there's not going to be a happy ever after here, is there? And I just went, no, no, there isn't, kid. I said, I wish there was something I could say. I wish there was some comfort I could offer you, but there isn't. It will go on and then one day it will finally stop. It was the same thing when my mum died. My brother, it was looking after most of the time. He said the same thing. So I could look at the situation from inside when I was being the carer. I could look at it from the outside, seeing what it was doing to Danielle. I could look at the outside and seeing what it was doing to my brother. And I think when I put all that together, that was how I managed, I think I managed to get that, achieve that voice. And also because I think when you're in a situation like that, uh, I think this is, this is what happened to, you know, as I call a poor, sad, sweet Eleanor that you don't, you're not quite sane. You can't yeah. be. Because if you were sane, you know, I don't know, it's, I can't find the right words. It's like, there's a, there's a, of all things, there's a, there's a great line in a, a comic book I read years ago called The Killing Joke by Alan Moore with the Joker says, mm. the world's a crazy place, was it? If you didn't go mad, you, you have to go mad because any other response would be insane. And that's, that's what it felt like. Um, and also what I wanted to try to do, I suppose, I wrote poems about being a carer as well. What I was trying to do was to find a way of getting across to people, if I possibly could, that this is what the word carer means. Mm. So it, it, was, it was exploring the Gothic and the haunted house and all the rest of it. But really, I think the thing I was most interested in was exploring Eleanor's character and seeing a 32-year-old woman whose life had been slowly but surely destroyed, had been just crushed out of her by circumstance. And in the end, I think when you're writing about a character, they become real to you. They have to become real in there. And I found quite a few times I'd be sitting on the bed at night thinking about it. You know? Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's a lot to think about. I can see we've got some questions in the chat as well. So Al has asked, speaking of Dylan, dot, 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 <laughs> have you ever um, written music and song lyrics and things of that ilk? 
never written music um, because mm. I can't read it. I was hopeless <laughs> at music in school. When I was in, I mean, it's very quickly. But when I was in the second year, when I was 12, we had this Christian brother came in and said, right, boys, you're all going to be learning a musical instrument for free for the next year. So I me, what do you want to learn, McCann? A guitar, please, brother. Right, I'll put you down for the violin. But one guitar, and he said, it's got strings, and that was it. And we were at this school orchestra, and I always remember we, we, had a, we had a concert in the summer term, and we all sat there making this cacophony, glaring at our parents who were all sitting there with these, like, stony faces trying to <laughs> laugh, you know, because it was bloody. <laughs> but I did have a go at writing a few song lyrics, but I never found any musicians who were interested in turning them into music. It's something I wanted to do. Because mm. I was a big Dylan fan, huge Dylan fan. Um, and I think I learned, you know, somebody said to me, I was in a school once, and somebody said, who were the main poetic influences on you? And I listed a whole number of people. And then at the end, I said, I'm Bob Dylan. Because, mm. I mean, I do consider Dylan to be a poet. I know that that's a very controversial thing to say, and I know it put a lot of people's backs up when he won the Nobel Prize. Mm. My view oh, my is God. all songs and poems, it's just that some songs are really, really bad poems. That's all it is. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm always on. The, I mean, I'm always on the lookout because I do like rhyme. I, I got into rhyme when I was writing for children. Um, you, once upon a time, about eight of the bomb, about eight nine years ago, lots of publishers were doing new anthologies for kids. They wanted new poems. And it'd be great. You'd get a letter saying, um, "You've got three months. I want poems about dinosaurs." And we'll pay you 50 quid a poem. So you, you buy, I mean, I've got a rhyming dictionary. I'm shameless. I've got a very good rhyming dictionary. But I love rhyme. And also the way I taught myself rhythm was when I was 14 or 15, what I used to do was listen to a piece of music, a Beatles song, say, get the tune in my head and then write my own words to that tune. That was how mm. I started. This guy, Matt Simpson, I mentioned, he said when he was in school, he was in a, um, the church choir. So he said his first poems were all based on the rhythms of Anglican hymns. Mm. But that, that was, yeah. So, I mean, if there's any, any musicians out there ever fancy getting I did get approached once years ago by a guy who said he wanted to turn one of my poems, he wanted to set it to music. And he did and sent me the recording. And I just had to write back and say, uh, no, because... <laughs> Have you ever heard The War Requiem by Benjamin Britt? I watched the first five minutes of that once. And he takes the he takes this poem, Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen, and he's got a singer just going, Who mourns for these who die like cattle? And it bloody ruined it, you know what I mean? Um and it was the same thing with this guy. What what I, I would like is some of the kids, some of the kids' poems, I think, would make interesting songs. And the adult stuff that I've written that rhymes. I did write one poem where I called it me like me Dylan tribute, where I tried mm -hmm. to get it's only three verses, but I tried to get a rhythm that I could imagine music being added onto it. So yeah, there you go. There's a plea. If there's anybody out there who's a musician who ever fancies working on something like that, I'm up for it. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be cash involved. I just do it for the love. Because being <laughs> old, I've been skint for 35 years, and once you once you get used to being skint, it's actually it's not that bad. You know, you appreciate. It's like, you know, one Saturday night, me and Danielle were sitting there, and we had two bottles of cheap wine, uh, a farm foods pizza that she'd added extra cheese and garlic to, and a DVD that we got out of the charity shop for 99p. And she turned around to me at one point and said, you know, money's wasted on the rich, isn't it? Because to them, yeah. this would be a really crap night, but for us, this is a brilliant Saturday, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I went, off, I went off topic a bit there, I beg your pardon. No, that's not off topic at all. That's, you know, that, that's, you know, kind of no ceasefire in the class war. That is literally always the topic. Whatever else is being discussed, that is the, the subtext and the text and everything else. Paul says, when we're writing a poem that's not quite coming together, it wants to be rock and roll, which made me laugh a lot. Um, 
I want to ask because you're talking about rhyme and it's not on my kind of like list of pre-prepared questions at all, but I'm going to blast it at you anyway, because I've got this real thing that there is such in UK, um, like contemporary poetry publishing, there's there's such a lot of snobbery, I think, about rhyme, like the old dudes, the old Faber and Faber dudes are allowed to do it. And it's considered a little bit cheeky and a little bit cool when they do it. But nobody else is allowed to write it. And if you try to sort of like send something off to like, like Poetry Magazine or Poetry London, you're sort of sneered out of the water. I mean, why do you think that is? I think that's, is this something that you've experienced yourself with your own kind of like publication career? And it's, I don't does know. it make I you mean, as angry as it makes me? Because it makes yeah, me it furious. <laughs> I mean, I remember I, I used to go on a lot of residential courses. I mean, when I used to run classes for the university and things like that in writing, one of the things I said to the students was, you know, you're never too old, to, you're never too experienced to learn more. Mm. I mean, I always say with poetry, if you imagine that the, everything that there is to know about poetry stretched end to end would be about a mile, then mm. in one lifetime, one poet, if they work really hard and study, etc., will get maybe about that much. <laughs> now, with rhyme, uh, I don't know why there's this snobbery about it. I remember going on this residential course and there was a, a well-known blood axe poet who shall remain nameless because he'd sue me probably. But in his introductory talk, this guy said, uh, well, rhyme's useless. Nobody uses rhyme anymore. It's passe, it's old-fashioned. It's, it's, you know, he really slagged it off. So I thought, oh, well, let, him, let him have his say, you know. And then I thought, right, I'll throw you. So, I'll, you know, and up. Uh, yes, Kevin, I said, don't you know that's a bit racist? And he went, mm. hey. I said, well, Afro-Caribbean poets use rhyme and you're saying mm -hmm. it's rubbish. And a lot of Irish traditional poets use rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Michael Longley used rhyme. Seamus Heaney used rhyme from time to time. Mm. And the one thing I always remember when I was, I was an English teacher for 16 years and we were doing um, Wilfred Owen, The War Poets, and there was one, he used echo rhyme, and I explained echo rhyme to them. And this one kid, Tim McAvoy, his name was, never forget him, he put his hand up, and I said, yeah, Tim, what? And he said, you know, you're saying like he uses half rhymes. I said, yeah. He said, does that mean he can't rhyme properly? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I explained, I said, like, he's trying to use a device, etc. But he also, he said the same thing. He said, like, why, 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 isn't, why don't poets use rhyme? Because to me, Rhyming, if it's used well, can really add something. I mean, I've been reading a lot of stuff. I remember years ago writing to Poetry Island, asking them if I could get some information about like traditional Irish poetic forms. Mm. And the woman who was running it at the time sent me a huge load of stuff she photocopied about, you know, Irish traditional poetry, mm. internal rhyming, half rhymes, you know, having the, the last syllable of the third word and the second line rhyming with this first syllable of the fifth word and so you know slapped a lot and as i started exploring it i found that rhyme in the right poem can add so much especially if you don't draw attention to it i mean mm -hmm. bad rhyming bloody awful i mean I remember, <laughs> I remember years ago going to an event in wigan and it was like a kind of uh, antique roadshow for poets and was, <laughs> this woman came across you know, she had a big pile, and I knew she was eccentric because she had a hat on that looked like it had like it had fruit all around it, you know. And she showed me these poems, and they all rhymed, but they made absolutely no sense at all. So I had to say to her, I said, "Like, I think you're being tyrannised by rhyme. You know, it's it's there's no there's no real meaning there." I mean, after 15 minutes of arguing, I, said, I pointed to Matt Simpson. I said, "See him over there. He knows everything. Go over to him and ask him." You know. But I heard, I went to a reading, um, an Irish poet who used a lot of rhyme. Mm -hmm. I think it was Tom Paulin. And when it's used properly, the great thing about rhyme is that when it's used properly, you're not consciously aware of it. It's there and it's there like it adds to the music somehow. Yeah. If you can hear it coming, so it's like a jingle, you know, dum-de-dum-de-dum rhyme, dum-de-dum-de-dum rhyme. It, it, you're, you're, you're waiting for it to happen, you know what I mean? But I what I like to do is I like to use full rhymes. I like to use half rhymes. I like to use echo rhymes. And I think if you if you are writing supernatural stuff, which I've done for kids, then I think rhyme really does add to it. So I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why. 
I think the big thing that I've also got is because I read a lot of contemporary poetry anthologies, I'm beginning to notice how more and more poetry that I read in the mainstream stuff, for want of a better word, the capitalist media. Mm-hmm. It's like you read these different poets. And honestly, I can't, if there was no names underneath, I wouldn't know one from the other. It, it's like they're writing, they, they, you know, one guy actually said to me, oh, I use a template. And I said, oh, writing by numbers, you mean? Yeah. And, oh <laughs> and I can remember going no. into a school, the best one, secondary school. And this, I said, getting the kids to write poems. And the teacher said, right now, before you begin, plan your poem. And I went, no, no, you don't plan. Don't do that. Don't plan it. And then a kid, oh. in a, junior, a kid in a junior school said, is it, is it, he dropped his voice and is it, is it all right if I, if, I, if I put some rhymes in? And I went, yeah, yeah, why, why, why are you asking? He said, only Miss says we're not allowed to rhyme. And I don't understand why there's this dislike of it and this, this idea uh, that somehow it's inferior. I mean, I know Milton once said that it was like it dragged poetry down, it was like the chains, etc. But you see, the other thing is, something I've discovered, is that if you're using a formal structure, there's a not a strange, beautiful thing with poetry. It's full of paradoxes, isn't it? Because if you're using a strict structure, somehow it seems to bring out a better poem. Yeah. You know, it's like um, moving away from rhyme just for a second, like with haikus, you know, mm. five, seven, five. I've written loads of five, seven, fives. But in the whole of my life, I've only managed to achieve one that I would call a genuine haiku. But I'm still trying. And the thing about rhyme as well is you've got to find the word that rhymes that carries the meaning as well. Something else that Matt Simpson said was rhyme can help to uncover meaning. It's like, you know, that poem I mentioned earlier, me Bob Dylan one. Yeah. Uh, the, the last verse, it's about a follower who goes in a bar and meets a bloke with tarot cards who gives him a reading. But the last verse, he says... Um, he told me to stop fighting my mind's demented twin. He said to me, we're all a friend. We're all afraid beneath these masks of skin. Now, when I wrote that, you know, when you have that, I bet you don't, the better something, I'm pointing to you with the screens, if you can tell. But, <laughs> you know, when that happens, I sat back and I, I mean, we're all adults here, there's no children, all that. And I just thought, fucking hell. Where did that come from? Because I couldn't, and now the thing is, I couldn't have made that up in a million years. It would never have come to me. I was looking for a rhyme for twin. The first one was sin, and I thought, no, I'm not having that one. And then it just suddenly came to me. Now, that's that's why I also like using rhyme and apparently restricted forms, because they can force things Mm to the surface you know a lot of the time people i've worked with in writers groups who write free verse a lot of them suffer from what i'll call what i call that'll do syndrome (laughs) and it seems good so they go that'll do but if you're using a strict form you can't do that if it doesn't make sense if the rhymes don't make sense and don't add to the meaning of the poem then it's just somebody tinkling a bell isn't it it's 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 nothing, but it can add so 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 much. Um, and I think the other thing about rhyme is it it's you know it's it adds to the music because it's like um, Basil Bunting said, you know he said when you write it, compose aloud. I read out loud when I've written something because it's not just what it means that matters; it's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And the, the the juxtaposite two words. You, you pick the exact two words and they, not only do they add to the meaning, but there's a, there's, a, there's a subtle music underneath it all that works on, that's working, I think, on the reader's unconscious. And that's, I think that's one of the things that draws people in as well. Well, that was um, all right. Well, that, was, that was fantastic. How everybody you know, I'm, I'm loving this because it's been years <laughs> since I've done this and I'm absolutely bloody loving it. Anyway, carry on. I could go on. Don't worry, I won't, but I could go on all night. <laughs> Well, it may but, come to that. No, sorry, you're right. There's two bottles of wine in the, in the fridge downstairs. 
my name on them. So I'll be, I will pack in eventually. Anyway, go on, Fran. Next question, Be Fran. Yeah, before you do, I actually, what I would really like is like to open questions to the floor and see if anyone else would like to ask a question. Yeah, I was going to say put the questions in the chat, but you may as well just like shout it out because um, unless you really want to put it in the chat, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody has anything, everyone's got all shy now. Yeah, people are. <laughs> I once did a workshop for teachers, and I, I, the, when they came in, they thought I was going to give them a talk on poetry, and the first thing was give out. I said, right, you're all going to write a poem now. And it was amazing how many of them suddenly, astonishingly, I had a teacher, I haven't got a pen. This is a teacher, <laughs> I haven't got a pen. I've left me glasses at home. I don't write poetry, I can't write poetry, it's hard. <gasps> The fear it inspires in people, it's quite, you know, you, you sort of wish that you could harness that power in some way and concentrate it in yourself as a poet, but it doesn't seem to work. People are terrified of poetry, but they seem to treat you as sort of a level below contempt. That's what, that's been my experience. Yeah, it's a weird but, thing, isn't it? The weird job description. What are you doing with poet? Well, it's like, you know, I, I was a road sweeper once when I was a student and I, re I was telling the kids about this when I was in school and I said, like, the thing about road sweepers was, if it wasn't for road sweepers, you'd be up to your knees in crap in about a week or less. <laughs> and it was the thing that suddenly that struck me very hard at, at the time is that when you're a poet, you're not better than other people. You're different. Mm. But the thing that I remember talking to another poet about this once, and I said to this guy, I said, you know, the funny thing is, he said, like, if bin men went on strike, everybody had noticed within a week. But if poets go on strike, bugger even sees. You know, that's one of the ironies about it, isn't it? And of course, it's that thing about England as well. The English love poets as long as they're good and dead. Because that yeah, way, for at least 100 years. They can defang <laughs> them or they can airbrush them out, you know, like the myth that Siegfried Sicilian wasn't a very good war poet, even though he was a superb war poet. But he had a very left wing point of view during the war years. So we don't want to talk about that. We'd rather talk about Wilfred Owen because he seemed nicer, you know, more yeah. arsehole kind of thing. Anyway, go on, carry on. Question. I actually see, yeah, Jack has his Jack has his hand up. He has his digital yeah, hand I, up. I, I, the thing that kept striking me, Kevin, is, you know, in talking about rhyme, for example, what happens for me is those words do become rhythmic, um, musical uh, in nature, just by their birth, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's a natural process, but there are stages of that process where, you know, ultimately we're talking about something that's much, much more primal in that we're connected to the words, we're connected to the stories, we've got the rhythmic part of it that ties it into our bloodstreams, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you see it that way, because the way you kind of described it was the opposite. And I see it as more like our humanity is what draws us to those stories. It makes them important and valuable to us as individuals. And it's the humanity of it. And that that like that rhythm tie is really our internal heartbeat or drum. Mm -hmm that's kind of driving our own lives yeah and so, so so there's that desire that kind of comes from the words or that anxiety or that warmth or love or whatever it might be that you mm -hmm. feel and i wonder if that's if i'm picking up on something or if i'm just you know that's just a difference in the way that we might see it i'm not sure to be honest with you because the thing about me when i'm talking about writing I mean, a lot of poets do this. You get the impression that um, this a lot of the time there's a conscious thought press go th conscious thought process going on while you're actually writing a poem. With me, it, I, I get these things occasionally. I get the thing that all poets like one, which is the gift. You know, the one that seems to come more or less fully formed. But even when they don't come fully formed, I found years ago that if I start consciously trying to think about it somehow something goes. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question right here, but basically what happens with me with a poem is that once I'm involved in it, um, mm. everything else in the world just seems to fade away. The poem itself becomes central to me thinking. I mean, I get depressions from time to time. 
And I remember quite a few years ago going to the doctor and the doctor said to me, I'm going to give you antidepressants. And I said, no, no, you're not. I did that once before. What happens with antidepressants is you stop feeling depressed, but after a while you stop feeling anything. You might as well be a zombie for all the difference it makes. Mm-hmm. I said, besides, I said, like, I've got access to the greatest antidepressant there is. Anyone wants that? And I said, poetry. Because when I'm writing, everything else just vanishes. So a lot Well, of the... and I think that what you're describing is a difference in process, really, more than anything yeah. else. And that's really the answer I'm looking for. Because right. the, the way that I write, you know, I'm, I'm still working on poems that I've been working on for 12 or 15 years. That right, yeah. started off as a journal entry about an event that happened on that particular day. And, you know, I've thought about it and rewritten it and, you know, restudied it and learned lessons from it. And so the telling of that tale may have changed. And one of the things in that process is to chop out some words and let's make it a poem, you know, and other things deserve to be longer and yeah. the story yeah. told as it is. And I think that's really because it all ties back to my own personal humanity, my own personal experience. And I'm very selfish like that. I'm aware of that. And that's what we're talking about. It's, it's, it's a difference in your perspective versus what mine is. It's, a, it's all. And that's exactly the answer I was seeking. Oh, well, good. Good. I'm glad. Because the thing is, I mean, I know what you're saying about going back to poems that um, you've written years previously. I, I, I do that. Well, I produced the book. I said, got it here. I'm not plugging this. I just happened to be because I was looking it up. That was my last book. It's great, and, by the way. Everyone yeah, should Nice cover, isn't it? Nice cover. That's cool. The thing with that was, I had a load of pamphlets out. And I was looking through them. And I suddenly realised I'd been very badly served by the editors, by the publishers, because they'd also suffered from that'll do syndrome. Part of it was because I discovered <laughs> there's a scam that a lot of small publishers do. And what it, what it was, briefly, it works like this. You set up a publishing house, you go to Arts Council England, you get a bucket load of money off them because you're going to publish six books of poems. So you publish five by other people and spend as little as possible on them and publish them as quick as you can. Then you spend the bulk of your money on your own. And for years I'd been, you know, I was getting these pamphlets out. Not like I said, nobody was selling them, but at least I was being published. <laughs> And then I, was, I sat down and got them all out and I reread them. And I was looking at various poems and thinking, that's almost there. That's almost there. What the, how the hell did that ever get in? That's crap. <laughs> that's bloody awful. Uh, that one's not me at all anymore. I think, it's, I think, you know, it's a bit dubious, to be honest with you. I think there's a little touch of authoritarianism creeping in or whatever. And what <laughs> I found was that when you go back to something years later, it actually, it's not, it's not a bad thing to do because sometimes you you distanced yourself from it, so you can now start to, to look at it objectively. The analogy I always use with being a teacher, ex-teacher, is like the parents' night thing, where you get um, you get somebody come in and they're talking to you about their son or their daughter, and you're telling them the things that you like about their kid, but you're also pointing out some of the things that are, are causing you worry or whatever. And the parents are so close to the kid, they can't see it. Do you understand what I mean? And it's the same thing. When you've written a poem, um, you're so closely involved with it in the end. That's why I've got Danielle as my first reader. And the response I want from her, I know. I, I'm in, I'm in my, my workroom upstairs right now. Next door is our bedroom. And we come up here in the afternoon and listen to music, keep the cat who lives at beer company, because otherwise she gets a bit depressed, understandably. If I've written something new, I'll say to her, it's up on the screen, so she'll come through. Now, she walks in with a big smile on her face and goes, oh, yeah, then I know it's right. And if she comes in and goes, um, well, uh, do you think you need that word in the second verse? And do you think that maybe the last verse you're explaining a bit? And it's that she's got the objectivity because she's, she's not written it. But because I've just written it, I'm so close to it. I can't, I, sometimes I just can't see the faults anymore. And that idea of, you know, I've met poets who say, no, once it's finished, it's abandoned. I just discard it. It has to just stand as it is. Why? If you can, if you can take something that was halfway there and, and turn it from 
something that was okay into something that's actually quite good. Why the hell shouldn't you? I don't think there's anything wrong with, with the idea of redrafting. I was thinking the big problem I had with a lot of my students at the university, the idea of redrafting seems to drive them insane. You know, one guy said to me, like, how many drafts do you have to go through? And I said, well, as many as you need to. Yeah, but how many is that? I said, as many as you need to. And I got two points. I said, right, see this one? I said, that was three. This one was 12. And the guy said, how did you keep going for 12? What we did, because I said, because it took 12 drafts for me to know it was right. Mm. And that, that was all there was to it in the end. It, it, you have to be, I think if you're going to write poetry, you've got to be serious about it. Doesn't mean you've got to always write serious poetry, but you've got to be serious about it. One of the reasons why I stopped going to poetry readings in Liverpool was because I, get, I got absolutely fed up to the back teeth with listening to people who had obviously tried as stand-ups and fallen flat on their faces. So I thought, all right, I'll do poetry. It's easy. Or the people who think that poetry is some kind of dodge, that, you know, it's it's simple. And it, it's not, is it? It's If you're going to get it right, it's it's a lifetime of hard work and study and reading, and it's worth every bloody minute of it. Because one of the things that I've discovered and it, years ago is that I love redrafting. I mean, I really love it. If, I, if, if something goes to 10 or 11 drafts, I'm in heaven. And the closest thing I've ever come to it in something that wasn't poetry was when I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which if you've never read it, give yourself a treat. It's a brilliant book. But the guy in there is talking about stripping down his motorcycle engine and laying out all the pieces and cleaning them and then putting it back together again and then switching it on and it running and it's smooth because everything's working beautifully together. That's how I feel about it. It's like um, redrafting is almost like micro-engineering. Remember, there's a great poem by Miroslav Holub, and I can't remember the whole thing, but it's about this: these kids who go to a fairground and there's a merry-go-round going around. And all the other kids are looking at the merry-go-round and there's one kid on his knees looking at the mechanism underneath and the kid's looking at the mechanism and he thinks to himself, that motor is smooth as shit. <laughs> and, and, and the last line of the poem was, and that boy, that boy will be a poet. And that's why, that's why I love it. That's why I love it so much. And yeah, it is a great, and I met Miroslav Oliver, I was lucky enough to meet him years ago, a few years before he died. And he was a wonderful poet really and a really wonderful man and i was asking him about i said how long do you work on a poem and he said well as long as it takes mm -hmm. and i said why do you write them like that in the long that long thin spare style he said because i'm an immunologist so what i do is if I, while i'm waiting for something to grow in a petri dish i could just go stand there staring at it he said i can't do anything else he said so i compose in there mm. and honestly every poet i've ever met who i've respected and liked and in some cases, literally loved. That's the one thing I've noticed that they've all got in common. They all You talk to them about redrafting and they all say the same thing. And I think that's the difference between the person who wants to be a poet and the poet taster. The poet taster rattles something out that that'll do because they're not interested in poetry. They're interested in impressing other people. Whereas the poet wants to, wants to write the great poetry. I started off by wanting to impress other people. I mean, when I was an, I was telling somebody, when I was an adolescent, when I was a teenager, when I first started writing, all of my poems were all addressed to girls. And they were either, I adore you, why won't you go mm -hmm. out with me? Or, would you go and finish with me for? I'm sensitive, you'll be sorry about that one of these fine days. But then, gradually, that bullshit fell, fell to one side. And I started to want to write about other things, things that mattered to me. Um... I wrote about the Vietnam War, not they were lousy poems, but I wanted to write about that because it was going on at the time. And I'd, I'd, seen, a, I'd seen a book in the library called Vietnam, Vietnam by Felix Green, Graham Green's brother, that told the truth about what was happening in the Vietnam War. And suddenly I, I was desperately wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about things that mattered and you know, fancying some girl who didn't want to know me, that seems somehow all of a sudden, like, yeah, it's annoying, but it's trivial, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Anyway, yeah, sorry. absolutely.
No, that's fantastic. Kevin, I think we're going to have to call it a night, but that was um, oh, amazing poetry. Yeah, <laughs> amazing poetry and amazing discussion. And I hope that, you know, come back and do another one of these readings for Culture Matters and that we can all maybe read together again another time. It was well, I'd love to. And I mean, to be honest with yeah. you, I would, I, I've enjoyed the conversation. I mean, I yeah. know I've done most of the talking tonight, but, you know, I don't want to sound egotistical, but it was about me. You know, it was what good. I, what, I, what would be great? What good seriously? Stuff. What would be great would be to meet together from time to time and yeah. talk about poetry and why we all love it and why we all think it's important and how we can make more. Not make not sound like force, but how we can induce <laughs> more people to like it. I think a lot of people are frightened of poetry, and yeah. there's no need to be. One last. I'll tell one last thing before we go. I was years ago when I was a teacher, we got uh, Macbeth as the O level play. <laughs> and there was a set there was this set of books in the book room called Shakespeare Made Easy. And it was parallel text. <laughs> one half was in plain English, the other half was in blank verse. So I read the plain English one with them first, so they could know what was going on, what the story was. Then I read the blank verse one. And at the end of it, now this is a class of 15-year-old Scouse kids. I said, All right, which one did you prefer? And this one lad, I think it was Tim McAvoy again, he said, I like the, I like the proper Shakespeare, sir. And I said, why did you like that? And he said, I just loved the sound of it. I loved the way it sounded. And that, to me, that was it. Because poetry is magic. It really is. But I'd better let you all go. Oh, and I'm, Kevin, thank I'm you. I'm gagging for a drink thank myself. You, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and thank you. And I'm also, I have had a look at the comments that come on the chat screen really nice thank you so much for all your for all your kind words and your support it makes a massive difference you know as mr spot would say live long and prosper all of you and let's meet again sometime I'd definitely for sure one of, these, one of these days face to face you know and a few scoops a few drinks just to lubricate the conversation <laughs> absolutely good night everybody take care thank you for coming thank you Bye, thank you Franny. thank you jack and franny and kevin hell of a show hell of a show hey, I'm, glad Fran, you like I, I'm gonna Thanks. i'll let the stream run out and upload and then i'll um i'll see what i can do with it and get it online somewhere as soon as i possibly can let everybody know at that point uh, and, and i'm coming to, i'm coming for you kevin we got things to talk about my friend let's let's build that place yeah exactly exactly okay well you look after yourself and good night to you i'm gonna go now good, good night, night everybody